Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the word. Lord, we're grateful. We'd ask that you would open your son's teaching to us. We would stand before him submissively. We would understand the big choice, the great thing that we must turn away from, the great thing we must turn to. Help us through it, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. I was looking in Luke today. Luke is, I don't know, it's probably my favorite gospel. If, you, if you're allowed to do that, I don't know if that sounds bad when you say, that's my favorite gospel. Many people like John. I like Luke. I like the stories Luke relates that no one else does. And what we have to be aware of in some cases, I was talking to Jake uh, yesterday about how people don't read their Bibles. They just don't read their Bibles. Let alone study it. They don't read it. Books are becoming passe now. Bookstores are going out of business because everybody thinks if they have a Kindle, it means they read. What do you get on Kindle? the latest Michael Crichton, if he weren't dead. The Bible is uh, filled with difficult things, filled with wonderful things. But one of the problems about gods is as you pursue a god, as you find a religion, as you find this is true, this god is god of gods, it, it embraces everything he says. And so Luke 12 is just one of those moments where Jesus is not behaving himself. He's being manifestly difficult. And I figured if I was going to get away with this, Palm Sunday would be the best time. You say, is this a sermon about Paul? No, it's a sermon about the Lord's teaching on some things. And I wanted to remind you it was Palm Sunday because the quote out of Luke 19 is what they, the people were shouting when Christ rode into the city on a the, uh, the little donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed in heaven and glory in the highest. That's how people were responding to Jesus there at the end of his ministry, right before the, the passion. The triumphal entry. Now, for those of us who have made Christ our God, we have found him to be God. We ought to be right there in the middle of that crowd, praising our Lord, declaring him king, declaring his peace in heaven and his glory in the highest. Now the, the rest of uh, the text for this morning, out of Luke 12, I just took a few verses out of the beginning part of the chapter. The chapter was too long, but it was holding together as an idea, and I wanted to not lose some of the key phrases from the beginning before we jump in at verse 21 at the top of the heap. Luke 12.1 says there on the left-hand side, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they trod upon one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that no more have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's not the kind of Jesus situation we always like to... You know, we like the, you know, um, suffer the little children verses. We love peace on earth and goodwill towards men. We love, um, uh, you know, the, the God is love passages. But reassure us. And when Jesus says that, you know, don't fear the world. And you want him to say, for I love you. And here he says, don't fear the world. I can hurt you worse. I can hurt you worse. Not only could I kill you, I could hurt you afterwards. Now, it's not that there isn't that care in God. Here in verse 7, right below that, why even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. <coughs> I quote a lot out of this passage in, in various other circumstances. You're talking about anxiety, you're talking about fear, but I want just a general thematic idea about your life. What moves us? What moves the church to become liberal? You wonder how that came out of this. What moves the church to become liberal? To start talking about all the things the world wants to talk about. Underneath it all, there are moods we have. There are authorities we follow. There are fears we, we engender or we don't. We want, naturally to have our life be arranged in the best possible way. That's, there's no crime in that, right? You say, I'm going to school, so it'll be the best possible way. I'll marry the right person, so it'll be the best possible way. I want these things to be in the best possible way. Verse 15, still on the left-hand side, he said, this is all in chapter 12. And he said to them, take heed and beware of all covetousness for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. What's well, a very natural thought. That comes out of the parable of the rich fool who's building bigger barns. I spoke on it a couple years ago, I think. It's very natural for us to think, well, I'll have a nice spouse, I'll have a nice job, I'll, I'll be able to get a second car when the time comes, not too early, I'll be able to have good health coverage, until recently. I have heard of this thing called health coverage. I had it once when I was in the Navy. We, we want to arrange our lives in such a way that the threats of this world do not unnecessarily attack us. And another commercial comes on the TV. 
warning you that this drug has been known to cause suicidal ideations. And if you felt any of that, you might want to call this law, law firm and join the class action lawsuit against Merck or whoever it is. You say, oh my gosh, you look at your wife, oh my gosh, I've had that suicidal just now. Watching TV, for some reason I wanted to kill myself. The world is filled with fear merchants. And it's not just fear merchants like, I'm, I'm, I'm warning, I'm not, this is not a sermon about, uh, oh my gosh, I made the worry, so I buy more insurance. Eh, that's true too, but let's, let's not go there this morning. Let's go to that arena where the world's threat to you, not nature's threat to you, I might get cancer, but the world's threat to you. Because once I'm in the, the, the mood of arranging my life to have the most peace I can get, the best arrangement, best husband, best job, best theology, I want everything worked out. I want to have a good, you know, physical regimen. Connell was telling me about his track, running track, and I was staring at him blankly. I guess he runs places fast in a circle. I have not done that in a while. Some people have a, a pattern of life. They, they work it out so that their diet and their and they're not unusually worried. It's not like they worry. It's not like they're disobedient to Christ about that. And we could see that maybe, oh, there is a problem with Christians thinking they can solve all the futilities of this life with enough insurance purchases. But again, that's not the sermon. This basic nature of finding ourselves well-governed realizes not only physical calamity and futility, but evil. And the world, capital W, the world wants you to fear it. It controls the keys to its kingdom. It will let you in or not. It will let you in or not. And the church is told repeatedly, every generation, by whatever is the current kingdom doctrine of the world, that they had better get along with that. Or, we won't like you. And we learned in high school what it is to be liked. Didn't we? Whether we were liked or not, we learned what it was to be liked. And we knew what it was to be invited to something, or not. And nobody wants to have that unarranged in life. And so you see the church starting to move. They call it the progressive, uh, the progress of, of church doctrine. What it is, is just, what does the world want us to think now? Let's uh, look at verse 21, which is at the top of the right-hand side. I want you to be thinking, Christ is 
asking of me something that is going to be against, not so much against buying health insurance. I mean, you could argue that too, but it's not that, oh, don't be a fearful housewife. He argues that in other places and here. But we're going to be looking at this and saying, do I find myself denying the doctrines of Jesus Christ because I fear the world? So, he, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now it's coming out of the rich fool passage. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, nor about your body, what you shall put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barn, but, and yet God feeds them. How, of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? So much of our choices in this world are a direct, personal thing violating every aspect of what Jesus just said. Jesus... You don't quite understand. But again, I don't, we, we, we can be consumed with the fears we're told to have, but not, sometimes, we actually structure the church or the teaching of the church to start to move us all doctrinally or in terms of our lives to, be, to stand in a place that the world won't disapprove of us. Because it's not merely famines that deny you food. There are governments that re deny you your tax exemption as a church. There are governments that tell you you cannot say certain things. I was reading an article today on, um, where was it? Breitbart or something like that, about a, a Christian in Ireland standing against uh, homosexual marriage from a Christian viewpoint, and he is having to consider leaving Ireland because the nation is so ideologically opposed to anybody who would say that they view you as a Ku Klux Klan person or a Nazi, and driving him out of his country, let alone people dying other places for being Christians. Some study in Pakistan just recently saw a whole bunch of young Christian women forced to marry Muslim husbands. Now, yes, we have our fears, but the world is up to no good. The world doesn't like what Jesus and the apostles of the Lord Jesus said, and so they are trying to structure a path by which, through fear, they can get people to cooperate what did we call it in World War II? You know, the Quislings, the, the Vichy France, what were they? Uh, collaborationists. They know, through fear, people will collaborate. And they will have an argument for that collaboration. And Christ defends us, not so that we can just be free from fear, but that our choice about who we fear, that was back earlier, 
being rich towards God because we fear him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm able to do that because I understand which is the bigger fear. If then, verse 26, you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? The tension I want to let you know is not choosing whether I give any attention at all to going to pennies and buying myself new Levi's. I have to get the relaxed fit, old guy, 550s because they're cheapest at pennies. Do I even think about such a thing? The problem of our faith is that we've allowed this contest at the top of the faith between your organization of your life in response to fears to be the fear of the world and the fear of loss and the fear of all the things that can attack you. That well, You won't arrange it, you'll be invited. You hear this about politics all the time. That people go to Washington, D.C., think they're going to go change the world, and then they find out that they might not get invited to the best parties unless they show a certain degree of collaborationist tendencies. Go along, get along, scratch each other's back. How much of Christianity today is starting to adjust the faith, starting to adjust the faith so that the world would smile on our doctrine. It only works if we fear them. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be of anxious mind. For all the nations of the world seek these things, and your, listen to this, your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be yours as well. So what's the, what's the Christian mode? It's not, uh, you know, quit your job, throw everything over, don't mow your lawn, don't do anything, don't think about this world. Say, no, I seek first the kingdom because I know God knows I need that stuff. God knows I need my lawn mowed and God knows I need to put pants on in the morning. And I know that if I follow him first and foremost, if I follow him first and foremost, I'm going to be provided for. But there's a matter of which is first. If Christ is first, my reaction to what the world expects of me is going, oh, 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 oh you, you mistook me for someone who cared deeply about what the world thinks. I care deeply about what Christ thinks. And so when Christ says that's evil, it's evil. That's what I care deeply for. If I seek God first, all these things will be added unto me. I, I don't lose them. It's not starving as some monastic. 
It's defending you of, against becoming this, this always adjusted, what do they call it in politics? He has grown in office. Whenever they say he has grown in office, that means he has started to agree with the world. Right? It's never he's become more wicked. He started voting for abortion. He's growing in office. How many times are you told, and again, you know, this is not a church where we pound the drum politically, but they're good illustrations sometimes. We see people who are telling the Republicans all the time, stop running on abortion. Now we've been gaining great ground because we've been running on abortion. Abortion is really being affected by the, effect, the work of the Christians. And we're being told not to because we might lose an election. Well, you're supposed to, you see, be afraid of what will happen. Be afraid of how people will judge you. So maybe you ought to change your views about something moral because you should be afraid of what is going to happen. Thirty-two, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now what you need to know is not only, so you're at the beginning of the passage, he said, um, let's see, you fear them, I think you better fear me more. But you also know that just like we fear the world and adjust Christianity to fit it, we're doing it not just because we fear, but we also want the reward they offer. Acceptance. Their blessing. Bigger crowds at your church. Popularity. Book sales. Christ wants you to know that if you fear him and pursue him, and his righteousness, and be rich toward God. If I seek his kingdom, he wants to give me the kingdom. Isn't that what we're, what we're talking about in all these things? Everything you're doing is you're making your little fiefdom, your little world, the set of rules, who are the gods and who are the kings over your little world, who are the people you follow, who are the people you admire, who do you design your life after, what trends are moving you, you are talking about a little government. And he wants you to know that his kingdom, his kingdom is worth finding and he wants you to find it. It's his good pleasure to give you that. Sell your possessions and give alms. Provide yourselves with purses that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's a great, you know, thing that your mom always told you. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now he gives a parable here. And this is the parable, I was, I was looking at the passage, it was the parable that set me 
looking back through the passage to see how this talk on fear led to this point, because the illustration gives me a different image than the usual talk about dealing with anxiety. You know, here a lot of Christ's remarks that apply to anxiety. We usually go to these remarks to apply it to anxiety. Quit being anxious. We know it's unbiblical, but this parable says something a little different. Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, and be like men who await for their master to come home from the marriage feast, so that they may open to him at once when he comes and knocks. Okay, that's what he tells you. You are supposed to be like the servants left at home, ready, looking at the door, ready, looking at the door. When's he going to come in? I don't know. But we're ready. The lamps are burning. I'm dressed. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will gird himself and have them sit at table, and he will come and serve them. So not only is he happy for you to find the kingdom, and happy to give you the kingdom, but if you have the right fear of the right agent, your, your God is the, the, the command is moving you to be ready in his absence. Now Roy read the passage this morning, an apocalyptic passage about our hope, and we are waiting for our God, the end of this world. You might be waiting your whole life. You might wait till you, you're dead. Everybody since Christ has waited till they were dead, then they died and went to be with the Lord. You're waiting as well. Are you girded? Are your lamps burning? Is your eye on the door waiting for the master because it's his approval and his standard of his world that he, you, you, want to, you want to faithfully uh, offer. And when that kind of person is in the house waiting for the master, the master comes in and the master serves the servant. That's what it says. He will come in and he will gird himself, have them sit down and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the householder had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. It creates a different parable there, the, the idea of the unexpectedness of a thief. I don't know when he's coming. I don't know when the master's getting back. And since I don't know, either for the master's return or a thief's breaking in, I had better be living according to the standard of the master. And Peter, knowing distinctions are crucial. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us? or for all? And the Lord very graciously refuses to answer. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward? Why don't you answer that question? Who is this for? Who, if I'm reading through Luke 12, on my own after the sermon, to see if I can get around this, 
excuse my fear. Let's just say, excuse my ultimate fear. If my ultimate fear is not the Lord, I need to excuse what I'm about. I start to do things in the household. I'm not sitting by the door, girded in the fashion that the Lord has wanted me to be girded, lamps burning because I want to serve my master when he comes. And I want his pleasure to be on me. I know that he wants to give me the kingdom. I know he wants to have me sit and be served by him. I have got to hold myself to the kind of service that the master of the house wants. Who then is the faithful and wise steward whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find in red, so do it. As you go out into your lives, you're going to, this is a college town, so you're going to graduate, you're going to go away, you're going to get married, raise some little brats. You'll look for a church. Do your best. Don't put up with nonsense. Start a church if you have to. You want to be in a situation not where the world is answered positively. Yes, we found that, yes, we're going to be concerned about this. Yes, we're going to be concerned about that. Do you like us yet? Do you really love us yet? Because, you know, when he comes, the faithful and wise steward will be found so doing. And part of it is not just you being girded with your lamp burning, looking at the door, waiting for the master to come back in some eschatological, you know, foment. You're feeding the other servants as he left you to do. You are edifying the rest, encouraging them to think of their true master, the living God, the Christ, to do what he said, to think like he thunk, if that's a word. Because blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. There's a lot of good in that. It started out the passage a little bit uncomfortable, right? He says, you know, I can hurt you worse. Maybe you better fear me. And you say, okay, all right. And then you find out that he is a benevolent fear. He wants you to recognize that, that the world can do to you, take your life, take your stuff, take your popularity. It's nothing compared to what I can do because I can kill you and hurt you afterwards. Then you find out that if I choose that, he wants me to find the kingdom. He wants richness towards God to provide the things that he knows we need that tempt us to run away from him and govern it ourselves. That's a... Uh, that's a great discovery. Because you know the world is not quite so benevolent. Oh, they promise you things. We won't, we'll invite you to the parties. We won't call you a Nazi. We won't make fun of you for having morals. Oh, okay, all right. As long as, as, long as you accept me. 
But God, the bigger fear, has the bigger benevolence. He will set you over all of his possessions. You understood to faithfully doing what the master had said for the 2,000 years that he left you here to do it. How much has that happened? Tragically in the church it hasn't happened much. They haven't faithfully done. They have faithfully sought to run their own kingdoms. Well, look what happens next. Verse 45. But if the servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. <laughs> Perfect, right? Oh, yeah. Right around the A.D. 400. I blame Augustine. My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the men servants and the maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Because the master is delayed, because it does, I don't know what hour he's coming, I am left thinking, I better grab more of this choice of government, respond to different fears, and try to design a church that is more in keeping with the fears I perceive, so that you're not doing what the master left you to do. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will punish him and put him with the unfaithful. Now listen to this. Because there are different categories here. You say, well, you know, I, I know that the progress of Christian theology has reflected, tragically, an awful lot of the progress that the world makes. So the progress of civilization is reflected in the progress of the church answering these questions. What is our position about? You see it in, in supposed evangelical churches where they actually taking a lighter view of homosexuality or premarital sex or all sorts of other things. It's very clear in the scriptures. I don't have to worry about whether or not it's clear. I'm wondering what moves them. Views of money. I want the world to admire us because we're successful. There are different ways that we try to accommodate the world instead of accommodating our God. Verse 47, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not make ready or act according to his will, shall receive a severe beating. I like to think of an axe handle. Did she a pale rider? A scene where Clint, a prophet, one of our own, rescues a guy on the street from a group of thugs. And he gets a hickory axe handle. And I know you deplore violence, but it's a sweet moment where the hand of God um, descends on them. That's how I picture the Lord coming into the situation. Someone who knew what Jesus Christ taught, what he wants you to think, and does not sufficiently fear the living God, but fears the world's acceptance of his ministry, so he changes what the Lord would have. He has all sorts of excuses of why Christ was speaking to a culturally different time. Well, yeah, he was. God just wants to come into a room, 
shut the door quietly behind him, pick up a hickory axe handle, and have at you. When God hits you with a hickory axe handle, you're into the next county before you know what happened. A severe beating. Have you ever been beat up? I've been beat up. I don't like it. I've never beat anyone up. I have participated in beating people up when I was in junior high, before I was in the ministry. Being beat up, ever, ever your brother or sister ever accidentally hit you in the nose? Now measure that and go, what if they intended to? And put their weight behind it. And what if they were God? And what if it was a stick? A severe beating. Oh, but so much of the church, they just, you know, put on their church clothes and go off to some evangelical bit of nonsense where everybody is letting the things of this world cave the standards of the church and nobody's reading their Bible, nobody's listening. Well, it's not a severe beating. It says, the servant who knew but did not do it. Oh, but wait. Verse 48. But he who did not know, did not know, and did what deserved a beating, he'll receive a light beating. Nobody gets out of here. You either get the, the, the God, he's happy to give you the kingdom. Happy to give you what is going to happen to you serving him in this world. But if you do or don't know what he doesn't like, and you've lived in accordance with your fears of the world, and you've designed the ministries you are in to answer and agree and comport itself with the world at the expense of the Lord, he's going to hit you, either hard or soft. And I don't really think at that point you want to be in those worlds. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required, and of him to whom men commit much, they will, they will demand the more. Do you know when you start to cave to the world's standard about a certain moral act that you're probably disagreeing with something in the scripture? I know people who don't know the scripture at all. I remember talking to a girl many years ago. She said, the Bible doesn't say you can't have sex before marriage. I said, let's sit down. Let's look at the word. It surprised the dickens out of her. I don't think it changed her. It's real comfortable believing, just sort of by not reading, that the Bible doesn't say anything about that. The more you know, the more he expects of you. If you're going to seek God, when it says at the top, rich toward God, all of this faith, wherever our treasure is, there will our heart be. We will set our hearts, we will seek, we will obey, we will live. We will believe the things we have sought. It's a dangerous place. You're walking out there into a place where Jesus Christ has asked you to be a certain way and think certain things. And believe me, it's not there to design a peaceful existence in society. Turning you into the charming young vicar 
of the nice Anglican church who can relate to all the business people and all the non-Christians. Well, believe me, this is not part of the design. The preaching of the gospel, the standards of our Christ, they will bother people. He did not design it to make peace in your earthly life, to make peace in your soul. The other fears are where you're trying to govern your life in such a way that the world will give you peace in this world. They, they seem to run everything, right? The prince of this world, worldliness, right? They're in charge, so I better do what they want because they might take our tax exemption away from this. What if they beat me up? What if they killed me? I wouldn't be very happy then. The Lord actually speaks to this. Don't fear them who can kill you. But I don't want to die. Uh, you don't want me to hit you either. If you're given much, you'll be required much. And then I centered this last section because I wanted you to... This is what sort of landed on me about this passage. It was, there are, we have been left by our master to do what he wants. I either study and have a purpose to doing what he wants, or I take what he wants, his household, his creation, his church, and I start to make it in light of the fears that are current. And we think because we're pursuing a better arrangement and getting along with the world better and not offending people too much, etc., etc., that that's what God wants. He wants that more. He says, verse 49, I came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled. I want you to think about it for a moment. Because he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am constrained until it is accomplished. What do you mean? Fire, baptism? Anything ring any bells? John the Baptist, Luke 3, left hand side, John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Oh, there are really two baptisms that are sacramental, fire and spirit. But we spend 2,000 years arguing over water baptism. Which John says, you know, that's what I do, and it's not as important. Because the guy who you're going to follow isn't going to be about water baptism. The sacrament is the fire. The sacrament is the spirit. There is no sacrament. I'm not arguing, is there, is there sacrament in water baptism, or is there not? Is it sprinkling or immersion? Is it infant, or is it believer? That's not the point. We're not about that. We're Christians. We're Christians. The sacrament you encounter in Jesus Christ is on one hand the change in your life by the Holy Spirit. If you were not baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. And you have to be ready as Christians to realize there's a sacrament of fire as well. That we are being called in a world that is eminently wicked to live for Jesus Christ by his standards unchanged. 
waiting for the master. Believing him, fearing him more than we fear anything else. And that's going to create conflict. Do you think, verse 51, I have come to give peace on earth? Well, yeah, I thought that. I heard the angels on a Christmas card once. Peace on earth, right? Now Jesus is telling you, do you ever want to send this Christmas card out? Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Quote, Jesus Christ. No, I tell you. Remember back at the beginning, he's going to be manifestly difficult in this passage. He just has grabbed you and said, you know, serving me is going to put you at odds with everyone. But rather division. For henceforth in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father. Mother and daughter against daughter and daughter against her mother. A mother, in case you're missing any of the possible arrangements. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And we want to fight over water baptism. Let's, that's a lot easier because it's just such a, you know... It's not real power. It's not really what God is about. It's the cowboys and Indians playing with cat guns. You had them when, well, if you were allowed by your parents. I was allowed by my parents to have cat guns. The little revolvers that had that unwinding thing and that most of them didn't fire. The, the cat thing didn't. But you'd shoot your brother repeatedly. Wishing. <laughs> Ever stop to think of what it would be like to take a slug to the shoulder? Not one time that would kill you, but just something that would tear your shoulder off. Those guns are big, big bullets. Rip, rip everything apart. That's a real gun fight. But we like to play in the water baptism into the pool. We want to play religion. We want to have a plastic gun with caps. The fire and the spirit are asking us to live a life where we are prepared for no peace on this earth. For persecution? You say, well, well why am I becoming a Christian? Because the peace you have in Christ is not the picket fence and the 2.5 children. It can be. But we are able to be at peace when men hate us. We are able to be at peace singing hymns in jail in Philippi. Because we have known who our king is. We know what kingdom we belong to. The kingdom he is happy to give us, as he says in Luke as well, that kingdom is in the midst of you. That kingdom is within you. Have you, have you bowed the knee to this so that your fears are rightly placed you are designing yourself to be found so doing when he returns. That you're treating the other servants as your master wants. Not taking it upon yourself to redesign the church. These are real sacraments. We do, do I believe there's grace in the sacraments? Yes. The real sacraments. There's real grace in the real death. The real body 
and blood of Christ, but not in the Lord's Supper. There's real grace in baptism, but baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your patience with us. We'd ask that you would ask each of us directly where our fear, where our service, what are we so doing, who are we obeying when we do? Are we trying to have a church that agrees with the world and does not expose itself to its threats? Or are we trying to please you? This we ask in your Son's name. Amen.